sponsored by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode, and with me are Denise Hi. and Jana. Hello. To discuss our latest pick, Perestroika in Paris by Jane Smiley. And spoiler alert, as is our custom, we'll be discussing the book in its entirety. So if you haven't quite finished reading Perestroika in Paris yet, you might want to return to this episode when you've done so. Now, first, a bit about Jane Smiley and her book. Jane Smiley is the author of numerous novels, including A Thousand Acres, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, and The Last Hundred Years Trilogy, Some Luck, Early Warning, and Golden Age. She is the author as well of several works of nonfiction and books for young adults. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, she has also received the Penn Center USA Lifetime Achievement Award for Literature. As for this book, the New York Times calls Perestroika in Paris a captivating, brilliantly imaginative story of three extraordinary animals and a young boy whose lives intersect in Paris in this feel-good escape. The Economist says it's an immersive fable beguiling a comforting read at the end of a difficult year, a winter's tale full of wit, warmth, and charm. And NPR.org describes it this way, a cozy fairy tale trot through the city of light, delightful, heartwarming, an appealing balm for harsh times. It's such a joy when an author whose work you've been reading for decades surprises you with something unexpected an especially welcome reminder of the bright spots, even in dark times. And a heads up to Perestroika in Paris is headed for the big screen. Producer Frank Marshall, you may know him as the producer of Jurassic World films and the Bourne Identity series, and director Barry Sonnenfeld, who uh, did the Men in Black trilogy, have teamed up to adapt Jane Smiley's novel into a traditional 2D animated feature, a la The Triplets of Belleville. Can't wait to see that on the screen. So, first impressions. Um, I'll go first and say I found this um, absolutely captivating. Uh, It is, I would say, a fairy tale, maybe more, uh, but it is a delightful read, and I think... The fact that Jane Smiley wrote this in 2020 uh, during the initial uh, lockdown period of COVID uh, has something to do with the, the the themes in this story. There's there's definitely a feeling of uh, hope and optimism written into it. I would give it five sparkly stars. Uh, Denise, what do you think? Um, I liked this book a lot as well. I I would agree that it it does have a lot of fairy tale qualities. And I thought it fit well also as a light adventure. Um, mm-hmm. I, as someone who likes adventures, um, but sometimes they can be kind of intense, um, which can be good, can be a little tough when you're trying to yeah. sleep, <laughs> you know, right before bed. Right. But this one was very light, lacking the edginess of some other books. For where I'm at, it was a great experience to have something that was just an easy read mm-hmm. no um you know nothing to keep you up at night nothing to really i don't know um 
kind of deeply mentally digest. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that a lot. Mm. I would I would give it five stars. Jana, your thoughts? Uh, so uh, for once, I'm going to give it two stars. <laughs> and I'm usually the one that rates everything very highly. I usually glean quite a bit from our picks. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I feel like um, looking at her writing – I don't want to downplay the quality of her writing. It's rather meditative. It's just slow and it's good writing, but it wasn't my cup of tea. I have to say that I disagree with the fairy tale aspect of it. I I do agree that it's a fable. It's kind of like Charlotte's Web. It's a Mm. sweet little kind of bedtime story. It's fantastical, but it's written in this very realistic uh, modern realism style Mm-hmm. Um, that I've just decided, I guess I don't care for. Um, I was trying to find more philosophy in it, and I, I think it had some, but um, comparatively, I wanted more, or maybe I would just need to continuously reread it and ponder it. And I just feel like in my busy life, um, it wasn't that time for me to be able to digest this. Um, and I, I don't like Disney movies, animated movies. I enjoyed them as a child, and I guess I feel like I've moved on. And so for me, this lap lacked depth um, of real fairy tales where, where you have an underbelly that's dark. You look mm. at the Brothers Grimm and that kind of thing. And this is just, it's very, to me, it came off as very Disney. It's a great, you know, family read for mm, children, yeah. even for children. <clears throat> it's for horse lovers, um, which I am not. I I have ridden and I enjoy riding. But she wrote this from a, a perspective of a young girl who grows into this rider, but who had this love affair with horses mm-hmm. um, and read all those books about horses. Mm-hmm. That was not me. And and furthermore, I'm not a dog person. And I think you guys are both <laughs> dog people. And I'm a cat person. And in one of the interviews, she was asked, well, why wasn't there a cat in here? And she says, well, the cat wouldn't get along with the rats. Well, also, you didn't have a cat. You had a dog named Frida and you based this story off your dog and off your mm-hmm. horse, also named Perestroika, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of audio biographical <laughs> content right. coming into this book. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it will speak to people uh, that love horses, that love children's stories, that love very sweet little tales, um, mm-hmm. and people that love dogs. And I don't qualify for that. Mm-hmm. So I struggled to, to want to <laughs> like this because I recognize yeah. that she's a she's a great, well-respected writer. She's exactly. won all these awards. And so part of me feels inadequate that I I lost interest, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think there's any reason to need oh, to no. be sorry. I mean, if we, if we you know, felt that we had to um, sort of slug through every book we picked up at the library, that's the beauty of it, right? Oh, we, yeah. get to, we get to have our own ideas. We get to like it or not like it or somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And we're all very different people here, and yeah. every reader is different. So yeah. that's, that's great, actually. We get to have more perspectives. So I appreciate it. Yeah. I don't think there's any yep. reason to be sorry at yep. all. And kudos to you for finishing the <laughs> <Right>. book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for me, it kind of brought home to me how subjective fiction is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And even if you can get this really well-reviewed piece of writing, right. it's still art. Mm-hmm. And art mm-hmm. appeals to different people at different times. Mm-hmm. 
and for different reasons and sometimes oh, yeah. not at all, right? Yeah. right? And yet you can still have the museum curators say, oh, this is a great work, but maybe it doesn't speak to you or maybe you're just completely turned off by it. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. And yeah. you can go on to the next gallery and enjoy right. something else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the diversity that we have in fiction is impressive. Mm. We mm-hmm. may not want to take all of it. Yes. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of diversity in literature, um, I found it fascinating uh, in preparing for this discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, reading some reviews of Perestroika in Paris and how people really f- f- fished for terms to describe the genre of this novel. Um, I picked up out of the reviews I read, um, this is an adult fairy tale. This is a screwball comedy. This is a satire. This is fable. This is allegory. Light Adventure. It's a horsey novel. It's a talking animal book. Um, and so I thought I'd throw it out to, just to the three of us. What would you call this? How would you categorize it? What genre is, is Perestroika in Paris? You want to go first, <laughs> Denise? Sure. Um, the Light Adventure definitely resonated with you. Yeah, yeah of them. Because I think it was a little more complex than just a horsey book or just... Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that she was necessarily trying to drive home a point like a fairy tale mm. or a fable tends to have. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. For me, it was like putting on calming, familiar music and just mm-hmm. sitting back and just sort of soaking it in and just sort of mm-hmm. experiencing it for what it is. Yeah. I didn't necessarily feel the need to analyze so much as like try to figure out how it's going to end and how is it going to culminate. Mm-hmm. So I think the adventure, even though it really did sort of lack some of the very highs and very lows of some of the other authors I read in adventure, mm-hmm. like Steve Barry and those sorts of, right. you know, or maybe a mystery. Well, I'll I'll uh, take the opposite tack and say I think this falls somewhere around fable, and mm-hmm. I do think she has a point that she's trying to make, and sometimes the message, uh, sometimes we can we can bystep people's biases by framing a story with some talking animals rather than people. And mm. I think she's going for something here. And I, I wouldn't call it a moral, but yeah. you know, maybe a point she's trying to make. And uh, I won't fully divulge it here. But yeah, I think I think this falls somewhere around fable. But I'll also throw in that in an, uh, in a uh, guest post she did for Barnes and Noble's uh, website, she said. This is fantasy, and this is my first venture into mm-hmm. fantasy, and and I wonder, Janet, if maybe you're picking up, you know, she's not entirely at home in the genre, and so maybe that's why her writing struck you as a little flat. Um, I don't know. She's got a lot more experience in mm-hmm. other genre, but this was new, so maybe you're picking up a little bit of her struggles. Could be. Yeah, I think there was a strange, uneasy duality between the fantastical and nature of the speaking animals mm-hmm. and then just the regular world, like the workaday Paris mm-hmm. world and the way that she proceeds in this linear narrative fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can see that. Her writing style. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. So where would you say this falls, Deanna? I, I agree with Denise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say feel good. You know, you said light adventure or something like that. I would mm-hmm. say kind of feel good. Uh, family friendly and mm-hmm. then there is a little bit of the fable as well it's kind of like the thing you read at Christmas time with your family like a child's Christmas in Wales or something like that that mm-hmm. that has some nuggets in it 
um, that you bring people together and mm-hmm. it's lighthearted. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a tonic for the pandemic times. And Definitely. that was what she was doing mm-hmm. as well. Well, uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into some discussion here of Perestroika in Paris. In this uh, list of questions we have, I have to give a shout out to Lit Lovers for supplying them on their website. Thank you, Lit Lovers. Let's let's start with, well, the first question is, how did you experience the book? Were you immediately engaged or did it take a while for you to get into it? And, um, um, well, I'll jump in first here on this as well. I... I found this one a fairly easy one to get into, and and part of it had to do with some some life experiences of mine in that I've spent some time in Paris, and if you talk about the Trocadero or the Champ de Mars or, you know, the areas around the Eiffel Tower and, and places like that, it immediately brings pictures to mind and also emotions that I've had as as a visitor there, as a traveler, as someone who actually... Uh, got to live in Paris for a couple months, a couple years ago, and uh, so those those parts of her tale resonated with me. And I could imagine a horse actually hiding uh, in in the forest and and actually getting somehow into those quiet, deserted streets uh, at the wee hours of the morning and, and going undetected. And uh, so that part for me was just utterly charming. So yeah, I got sucked in immediately. How about you, Jana? You know, I also visited Paris right around Christmas time with my aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one reason why I wanted to participate in this podcast, um, because I thought I would be emotionally brought back to that place. And she does kind of talk about the holidays there mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but I didn't spend a lot of time in this section of the city, so I, I cannot relate to um, that. And I have to say that I did not feel drawn in by her <laughs> descriptions of this area of the city, partly because maybe I'd never explored that area. Hmm. But also, it's written from the perspective of dogs that are looking for meaty bones from a horse that's going to get some oats from the baker. Mm-hmm. And so it's from an animalistic eye point of view of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, no, I was wanting, <laughs> I was really wanting to be... <laughs> you know, enveloped in the traditional Parisian mystique and and romanticism, right? Mm -hmm. And that is not what I got from this. Mm -hmm. Well, see, the next half of this question says, how did you feel while reading this book? Amused, sad, disturbed, confused, bored? (laughs) How'd you feel, Denise? You had a thought on this one. Yeah. In points where I might have thought it was a little slow, Mm -hmm. it was relaxing because there was very genuine interactions. There mm-hmm. was kind of a, I don't know, peaceful adventure, maybe kind of childlikeness of it. And so it just, it relaxed me. And I didn't mm-hmm. mind that we were taking our time through this because, you know, one thing that is pretty common in a lot of animals is that they're not necessarily in a hurry, particularly mm-hmm. horses, dogs, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. They're, they have basic needs and they're, you know, they're curious about things, they need mm-hmm. food, they need shelter, but they're not as rushing around as people tend to be. Right. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, yeah, let's just slow down a little bit and just kind of get a little bit immersed in that book, kind of just lost in whatever's happening mm-hmm. and see where it takes me versus me trying to figure out where it's going to go. 
And I did keep having in the back of my mind like that sort of when's the other shoe going to drop? When, you know, like <laughs> where, like the, you know, they talked about the, the officer. What did they call They called him? The gendarme. The gendarme, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, every time he popped in, I was like, oh, no. Oh no! And I'm waiting for like yeah. <laughs> he's gonna bust them. <laughs> yeah, that lady in the tramp moment. I'm like, no, ah, yes. And um, you know, or when the people from the school showed up and yeah. talked to Jacques about Etienne, and mm-hmm. so I kept waiting for that, and and it it didn't quite come. So I was like, okay, we built a little tension, but mm-hmm. I can still sleep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it, I don't know. For yeah. me, it was yeah, it was like a, a nice warm blanket and a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Very much that a kind of like read, yeah. yeah. And I, I didn't even f- get through it before I was telling my daughters, so I was like, "You have to read this book," <laughs> and it's great at the end of a, you know, a crazy day, just to let it be what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think they're both at some point, probably over winter break, they'll probably, oh, nice. hopefully, pick it up. I yeah. hope they enjoy it. Oh, yeah. And, well, and and I also wanted to just mention that it sounds like all of us listened to. Mm-hmm. This book, yes, audio, yes. Um, so I wondered if that may have, you know, because it is a just different experience auditorily versus visually. If that shaped the experience emotionally as well, mm-hmm. I certainly think the the narrator, sheesh, it just seemed that she had that story so well in mind. I thought it was the author narrating until I, I looked up her name. Yeah. And uh, yes, uh, kudos to her. She did a marvelous job. Uh, well, she did a little bit of voicing and yes. she also uh, spot on on her French pronunciation of things <laughs> and places. And uh, But you're right. I think that kind of colored the experience of the story if you let it unfold um, auditorially. And it's almost like someone telling you a fairy tale uh, in a way. And that, that can be relaxing right there, it's letting someone else do the work of telling you the story. Definitely. And, and you're right, too. It seems like there, there are no v- real villains in this story. Or if they are, they're kind of shadowy. Like uh, I know the rats are always watching out for cats in the neighborhood, but you never quite bump into one here. Um, the least, cat, of course, is going to be the villain. The, of course, would be their <laughs> okay, villain. Come on, you guys. And, <laughs> and you know the the authorities, the, the the school authorities, who are kind of through uh, the the final maybe third of the story are, are kind of keeping their eye on Etienne, uh, uh, the young boy who's a major uh, character in the story, um, who has not been to school, and um, you know they're they're kind of closing in, but they're never quite. They never quite materialize, it seems, until the very, very end. It, it's hard to put your finger on something evil in this story that, yeah. that is, uh, you know, menacing. Mm-hmm. And and for that reason, it is a very gentle read, I think. For sure. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Do the main characters change or mature by the end of the book? I would say at least our main character, Perestroika or Paras, for short, as she's called, definitely changes in, in the course of the story, what what gets her out of her stall at the beginning of the story is curiosity. She's a very curious filly, as they say uh, in the book. And uh, it, it wasn't so much that she was um, hell-bent on adventure. That, that didn't really seem like part of her character. Uh, she was simply curious and followed her nose, let's say. And when the door was open, she pushed it. And when the purse was there, uh, she picked it up. And when, you know, the, the gate 
where she was staying, where she was stabled, was open. She walked through it. And uh, that's how the adventure begins, very, very quietly, very naturally. You know, you, you go looking for the better bite of grass, and it leads you to another place. And pretty soon you're walking through streets, and <laughs> and the adventure unfolds. Uh, but by the end of the story, several things have happened to Paras. Uh, she's gotten older. Uh, she's graduated from Philly to Mare, and she realizes it. Uh, she also starts to realize the impact a little bit of what she's done to the people in her life, like Rania and Delphine and Madeleine, uh, who you know were tearing their hair out trying to figure out how did this happen? How did she escape? Where is she now? Is she alive or dead? Um, and I'm responsible. And uh, it seems like toward the end of the story, she began to realize, oh, these people took care of me. Mm-hmm. And I understand now by by going out venturing on my own and having to learn to care for myself or rely on other people or in this case animals to care for me, you know, I owe a debt in a sense to those people. And uh, so she matures. I think her her... Her frame of reference grows a little bigger as a result of her adventure. Yeah, I um, I liked how they, um, like I said, like you said, no character is truly very harsh. But mm-hmm. even in their interactions with each other, it's almost like each of them provides a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> so where mm-hmm. um, Paras is that really sort of that innocent. She's naive yeah. at the beginning of the story. She, yeah. Yeah. She doesn't understand how things work or, mm-hmm. I mean, she has context for Frida because of Asasan. Mm-hmm. Asasan. Another uh, dog, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. another dog, but very different. Yet Frida as the dog is more world worldly, worldwide. Street smart. Yeah, yeah. street very smart. Very street smart Frida is. Yeah, and then you have Raul who is wise, but in sort of an odd way. <laughs> he's not always helpful. Yes, but, but he's got to speak his piece. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they kind of add something mm-hmm. in their conversations, add something to the group. Mm-hmm. I mean, which some of it is survival, what they can actually obtain or how they can help navigate safely mm-hmm. through, you know, wherever they are in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, but... They also could do okay on their own. I mean, arguably, Paras would have had the hardest time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't. And one thing that, that the people in that, and we kind of, you and I, Barb, had talked about that a little mm-hmm. bit. You had several people who had an opportunity to be like, okay, there's a stray horse in Paris. Mm-hmm. We should call someone. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not right. And they all were kind of like, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> like there's a little manure. However, you know, yeah. no one is being hurt, mm-hmm. and you know, so we're gonna either look a th- look the other way or mm-hmm. not seek out um, mm-hmm. the authorities for this. Or mm-hmm. and so they get a different interaction with her, right? With Paras, and it's to me, it was very strange that they were so like meh about. <laughs> Oh, but I think, and, and I mentioned this to you, I think this is a very French attitude toward authority that, um, you know, if you could beat the system, more power to you. And I think maybe they were rooting for Paras uh-huh. <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to beat the system. She's not hurting anything, you know. She's even supplying manure for the plants in the show. <laughs> right. So, and hooray bringing, fertilizer. Yeah. She brings joy. Yeah. She, oh, absolutely. She brought incredible joy to several lives there. And so... 
yeah, it's this, you know, why bother with it? Nobody's getting hurt kind of attitude. And I think that's a rather French attitude yeah. toward authority. Which I was, I appreciate because I'm the one that's never been to Paris. Gotta go sometime. Cool. Oh, I, I want to. And, uh, and one of the things that, that it was a very small remark, but it caught mm-hmm. me because Madame de Mornay, mm-hmm. she's the great grandmother. She barely sees, she can't hear, she, you know, mm-hmm. she's very limited. And it talks so often about, oh, Something would happen and she'd just sort of be okay with it. Yes. And it couldn't register. She even knew. Mm-hmm. But there's one line that says, the manure was not unnoticed by Madame de Mornay in the drawing room. I think it was in the, the drawing room of her house. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she never says anything. Like, we're talking about horse poo in your house. <laughs> and if it didn't go unnoticed, but yeah. yet she never says anything. Mm-hmm. She never indicates so mm-hmm. I think maybe on that level, even she was maybe enjoying it or understanding somehow Some ATM of food. Yeah. And yes. I, I wanted to mention her as well related to the question of how did characters change because mm-hmm. she was one that reflected near the end of her life. Mm-hmm. She was quite ancient, right? Mm-hmm. And she knew that she was approaching the end and she regretted mm-hmm. that she hadn't set up a trust fund for Etienne, <gasps> right. her great-grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like his one surviving relative, yes. I believe, and caretaker. Mm-hmm. And she blamed it on the fact that, Smiley writes, she had been thinking of how her home had protected her for her whole life. And as a result, she had failed, even when she could see to look out the window at the larger world. So I think maybe she's coming. I don't know if this has to do with the horse manure, but, Mm. you know, it's possible that she had so sequestered herself in her ancient um, ancestral home, mansion, really, um, Mm -hmm. that she failed to become a part of the society um, and to, you know, create a pathway for her offspring, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, um, her descendant. Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as a part of that society, it feels like she was kind of selfish in how she had lived her life as an individual because she was so withdrawn. Mm-hmm. At least I got the sense. And this book was really about um, orphans finding community right, and then touching the lives of others, um, like the shopkeepers and those that needed more beauty in their lives, mm-hmm. that wanted more nature in their lives, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. just more understanding among creatures. Yeah, and um, and so she's yeah. I think talking about symbols, yeah, it just seems like her and the ancestral home are just a symbol of just like holding yourself up, being isolated instead of yeah. you know looking towards the future. And thinking about how does one interact in society? How does one give back? How does one participate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think you put your finger on if, if there's a moral to the story, if there's a lesson I think that, that the author was homing in on, I think it's that, that um, we lose so much when we isolate ourselves uh, from others. And, <laughs> and that, that's what we did in the pandemic, right? Exactly. <laughs> See, I think it, this was so much... Uh, an author's meditation on what we were going through right then. And what's the antidote? The antidote is, is friendship, is, is connection. And uh, the whole story seems to be about how these animals and the young boy and the great grandma, uh, forge connections and, and, and how those connections 
make them more uh, alive, more more happy, yeah. um, give them more possibilities. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I also saw that with Anais. Mm-hmm. Uh, she works at the bakery and mm-hmm. uh, talk about how she, the hours she works, she's there early in the morning. She's no, isolated. Yeah, yeah, no one's up. No one's around. She's almost 30 and she doesn't really have no friends. prospects in mm-hmm. life. Yeah, yeah beyond her job. Yeah. Some of it's her schedule and mm-hmm. those kinds of um, restraints. But then this horse comes around and it just seems like it's funny because how even later in the book, she still seems to have this part of her that doesn't quite believe that that horse is real, mm-hmm. even though she has touched her, she's fed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of my favorite, most captivating, I guess, moments in the book mm-hmm. um, was that moment where um, she's feeding Paras, mm-hmm. but then she reaches out and she's oh, stroking yeah. her. Mm-hmm. I was just drawn into that because I was mm-hmm. like, well, I know when I feel alone or I have stress, one of the things I do is I will go and and seek out one of my dogs and mm-hmm. just put my hands through that fur. Them. And mm-hmm. my oldest dog, um, he's seven and a half, and he just knows, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to hug you. I just <laughs> need to run my hands through that fur and mm-hmm. and take a deep breath. And he's great about just standing there or just laying there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very poignant moment. And I wondered right. if maybe that sort of helped her character open up a little bit and then eventually mm-hmm. be open to the um, relationship that was kind of alluded to with Pierre at the end. Right, right. You know, yeah. brought, she brought the animals, the mm-hmm. Paras connected animals to people, but also connected people, people to, to people. people. Well, uh, next question. Did you find this story engaging? Uh, Deanna, do you want to start us off with that one? <laughs> Maybe we feel like we might be <laughs> beating the dead horse here. Yeah, yeah. I kept waiting for something to happen. I thought mm. it's just a slow intro. Mm-hmm. But then it just proceeded like that for pretty much the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then it did a little thing at the end where it kind of tied it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There were some loose ends left, however. Um, <laughs> yeah, we won't know exactly what happened. But uh, engaging, maybe? How about you, Denise? <laughs> Yeah, again, it was engaging, but not in an intense way. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was, I'm, I was curious to see how it was going to play out. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, like once I sort of relaxed from that other shoe, like realizing it's probably not going to drop. Mm-hmm. I think I got just a, a touch of reassurance from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two thirds of the way through, <laughs> Barb, you were like, like yeah, it's, it's a nice, easy. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> because I can't have that, like, you know, sucker punch. Exactly. <laughs> no, no major twist, please. It would, I would describe it as more of a meditation. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. This is not a page turner. This is not, you know, high, high speed, fast, got to find out what happens next kind of thing. It, it really does unfold before you slowly and the focus is not so much plot but characters and it, i think that's mm-hmm. that's what jane smiley was going for this is a this is maybe a more of a character yeah. sketch yeah. than uh, you know uh, a highfalutin adventure yeah i thought she did a nice job with she seems to have some understanding of horses and dogs and definitely that she's she really got the difference between the horse as a prey animal, and and even uh, Raoul the raven and the ducks, mm-hmm. but versus Frida, um, when she was kind of talking as Frida, I was like, "Yep, 
That sounds like a dog. Yep, that sounds. Just as a side note, I was very, I thought a lot about why did she choose this breed of dog? Oh, yeah. Because I'm very into breeds of dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, why a German <laughs> shorter pointer? Is it significant that it's a German breed? Is it significant that it's, you know, a hunting breed? And I thought maybe the hunting played into it as a survival you know, kind of thing, even though most of what mm. she does when she interacts for food is very tricks. Big <laughs> yeah, she does tricks. She's been trained. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not, she knows not to snarl. She knows not to get dirty. She knows yeah. not to. Um, but I think part of it was if you think about the look and the outline of a German short hip pointer, there's, it's, it's very lovely lines. Mm-hmm. You know, very lovely. They've got a deep chest, kind of like the sighthounds I have, you know, and mm-hmm. that lovely tuck up before the legs and that mm-hmm. long neck and very elegant, very striking with the ticking, the spots on. So I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... You read what you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> into the story. Yeah, and the fact that she's a purebred, which I think fits well with what we kind of think of in mm-hmm. Paris. But I was like, why not a poodle? Like, mm-hmm. Well, because that's what you expect. <laughs> also, a poodle would have a horrible coat after living outside. Oh, boy. Yeah, it'd be a mess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's see. Why do you think Jane Smiley chose to tell this story the way she did? Jana, you had some thoughts on that one? Yeah, so I agree with what we were saying about her strong characters. I think mm-hmm. the humans and the animals were, were well drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, I could imagine them. And having lived in France as well, I lived there as an undergrad a couple, well, once, and then after I graduated, I went back. And <laughs> I could see those people. Yeah. They did come alive for me. They seemed very French. And Jane Smiley has spent a lot of time in Paris and, you know, walked around for her research. And so all of that was very well done. I think there's so we know that she tells stories from her perspective. When you're Mm -hmm. writing a character, you have to really hone in on like, what is the perspective of this Mm -hmm. person usually? But then as 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 an animal lover, she is able to do that for these different animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like that was where she had a lot of strength and her writing really shown because she could inhabit those different animals yeah. and write about them so well. And as a person reading it, it gave me the sense of inhabiting the landscape as an animal, which is nice because mm-hmm. we don't usually think in that way. Right. So it's freeing. It's kind of expanding for the way that we live. So I I did enjoy that. So I think perspective is huge, mm-hmm. um, points of view and languages. And, and right when, you know, she's writing in English about a French place, a French-speaking place. Right. Um, so there's the idea that, that these uh, creatures, if they were actually talking, would be speaking French, but mm-hmm. they, they may not actually be using human words. Sure. But they communicate among themselves. I just felt like... It was so touching at the end where there's a quote. So Etienne's great-grandmama has passed, and mm-hmm. all of the orphan animals that have moved into the mansion um, circle around him mm-hmm. in support. And I just love this where she writes, Etienne knew that they were talking to him, though not in his language, and he felt comforted. Mm. So I think there's just a beauty in that that the animals may not use words but he knew that they were still talking to him um, and speaking a language he could understand mm-hmm. more of a hard language yeah <laughs> yes yes 
And were there any passages that struck you as insightful or profound? Did you have any favorites, Denise? Or um, oh, the the ones I've mentioned. You've already, mentioned them already. Well, yeah, I liked the the moment when where the great grandmother died, and I mean, you, and then you remember that he's eight. You know, that yeah. Etienne, Etienne is eight, eight years old. Yeah. So you're like, okay, because I forgot. I was like, is he like? Six or is he twelve? I couldn't remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. He chooses like what he chooses to do in that mm-hmm. moment. He's like, he, he does what he knows. So he cleans everything up, yeah. you mm. know. And he he's it's like he's comforted by cleaning around her and mm-hmm. making her room the way she would have wanted it, and then cleaning the whole house. He knows her that well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he had kind of skimped on that. Yes, there was yes. a passage yes. he where was feeling a little. I bit think she had been guilty. running her hand along something because she was blind was, pretty yeah, much. Terrible. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then she kind of scolded him mm-hmm. that he shouldn't be leaving things this dirty. Yeah, you know? and it was a very subtle kind of like, uh, but he got yes. a point, yes. right? Yes, yeah, yes, and yes. he never actually goes to the authorities, and he talks about you know they both were concerned that no one find out that they were in that house together. And mm-hmm. exactly that, how how close to the end that she was, and mm-hmm. all these things. So, and then he just he just leaves. You know, he spends one more night there. Mm-hmm. So, I guess it's not morbid to him that great grandma has is just still dead in her bed. Like a day mm-hmm. later, he kind of almost just just um, like released from that. Just I'm gonna go off with these animals, yeah. and it seems very natural mm-hmm. um, to just leave with them and have no destination and have no plan. Mm-hmm. Um, that, wow, that's kind of a really interesting approach mm-hmm. versus all of the things we think of. Again, that rushed, like we need to call, we need to make plans, we need to think about this, and mm-hmm. what are we going to do about that? Um, it's just like, okay, I'm just going to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and that going brought him to a new life, and he didn't know it would. Yeah, there was no guarantee, I guess, from the animals that, you know, this is going to turn out all right. Yeah, um, yeah the... Uh, the school authorities could have shown up at the door right that moment, and yeah, that would have been the the end of that adventure. But yeah, yeah. but he trusted them. I think it, trusted the animals to, and he yeah, and carry he trusted him. himself, right? Because he had read the books in the library. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. he read the horse books. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. you know he, he's an eight year old and he hadn't had any training, mm-hmm. you know, about horses or riding or, yeah. but as a librarian. Just shout out to Madame de Mornay's library. <laughs> right. Must have been and the fact that she left the books lying around. I think they were piled everywhere. And he could read um, anything. And he did. And he yeah. was homeschooled, basically, mm-hmm. even though there wasn't really a term. Um, yeah. He was self-schooled. self-schooled. I was just mm-hmm. thinking self-schooled. An autodidact. Yeah. Uh, so he was able to do that. And I think you know, one of the passages that I thought was poignant um, was the one about reading um, the one about learning, the one about how how we really learn things, right? And do we learn them in school or do we learn them out of school? And um, he had read all of these books in, you know, Grandmama's library um, where the authors were saying, quote, according to every single author, the attempt to have a thought of one's own was the gravest sin. And that's what he read from all of these people that had written all these books in the library, these writers were saying how horrible school was. And it was because <laughs> when you were in school, you're expected to memorize, you know, facts and figures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it was just all about that instead of like 
you know, how do we really think about things? How do we really interact with the world? What's mm-hmm. actually practical that we need to know? Mm-hmm. And all of those things, which he, he kind of took on himself to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. he really did. And um, I think maybe that's why I thought he was, I forgot how young he was oh. until it was mentioned. I kept, how old? Because he's, first of all, doing all these on his own. Mm-hmm. You know, no one seemed to be making him read or whatever. Right. Um, but he just enjoys doing it. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I don't know about a juxtaposition, but sort of contrasted in a way with Frida and how she interacts with this money. Like she mm. sort of knows what money is and she goes through that whole process of this is important and I I know which colors are more important to, uh, to Rania and, and Delphine. But then when she takes money and goes to the grocer mm-hmm. and goes to this whole, like, I'm showing you what I want and I'm going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm waiting for her to be cheated yeah, <laughs> or to be thought of as a thief or something. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that it was almost comical or whimsical how she goes through this. Yes. And, again, they're like, okay, yeah, dog with money, buy groceries, this is totally fine. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I see nothing wrong with this. That's right. And so she's got even more kind of worldwide, streetwise than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's a remarkable dog. Yeah. Put those two together and then add in, you know, add in a naive horse, which is great transportation. Yes. <laughs> what would you say are the themes that the author explores in this work, Jana? We've talked about some of the other themes, um, like home versus the individual, um, the value of friendship Mm. or love in society. Um, Another theme that I picked up on was money, inheritance, status, and economics. So as we talked about, Paras um, picks up her purse because she feels like this is a belonging Mm -hmm. that she won from her race Mm -hmm. um, when she, you know, leaves and gets out of the stall or the barn um she takes it with her and because she, not because she knows what money is but because she feels that it belongs to her mm-hmm. and she's heard about purses and how people have them yes so she goes from being very naive um with this purse to meeting frida who is pretty savvy um yes. and knows how to buy things with the money and the other animals i think maybe represent different aspects of understanding uh, different philosophies of living in the world. I'm not mm. sure, you know, mm-hmm. Raoul is very old. He says that the aves, the birds are reincarnations of other animals. So they've lived right. many lives. And he says he speaks seven languages, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he never proves it. <laughs> I, I mean, so we have him and then we have the rats and um, she writes that the rats are very, very, very practical. You know, life is short, tunnels are long. Um, and that horses have sayings like either go or stay or something like that. Like mm-hmm. the horses are very just simple kind of mm-hmm. creatures and you have. So I feel like there's an animal firmness to this book in terms of there were very yeah. small little snippets of philosophy that I picked up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt like they were somehow there and they were kind of voiced by these different animals and how different they were oh, in yeah. terms of their characters mm-hmm. um, and especially related to money and property um, and how they're all kind of converging on this, you know, some of them are wild animals, some of them are kept domesticated animals right. that have just been left alone because their owner, the busker, 
of uh, the owner, Frida, mm-hmm. I think went to jail. Um, or passed away. Or yeah. passed away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, did you have any thoughts about that? I was trying to process how does this all fit together. Uh, oh, um, I, yeah. And Paras asked uh, Kurt the rat, do all petite animals talk all the time about their property and importance? Because, you know, she overheard him talking about that. Mm-hmm. And he has this very small, you know, amount of space in this huge mansion. Mm-hmm. But he says, you know, in the first place, size is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. so yeah. So what kind of hierarchies are we talking about here? Like what kind of economies or what is she trying to say about all of this? Mm, yeah, <laughs> I think she said an awful lot about money and and how um, how foreign a concept it would be, I guess, to us if we were animals. <laughs> the yeah. one animal who really seems to understand it has, um, I guess, learned by by experience, Frida. Right. Uh, she seems to understand money because she belonged to a busker who lived by people giving him money for uh, his music. Uh, you know, he would be a street performer, you know, would, would basically live on... Uh, whatever people were willing to hand him. And Frida, being a smart dog, uh, began to pick up on the importance of money. And uh, and so she was able to take what Frida simply saw as a belonging and use it to feed the whole group, you know, basically yeah. by, by pulling out the right bill and, and heading off to the grocery store and uh, you know, keeping an eye on the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> she really took responsibility in that sense because she had some understanding of money. But the rest of them, I think, were clueless and just simply enjoyed whatever she brought back. Um, that was something that they were uh, able to enjoy, except the banana. Except nobody the banana. knew what to do with the banana. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but not yeah. a great investment. Bananas. I yeah. Guess. Who knew? <laughs> You have characters who are giving, like just every time Paras goes to see Anais, mm-hmm. she feeds her and feeds her and feeds her, and it's mm-hmm. sugar and apples and oats and oh, and no. carrots, you know, yeah, carrots. And carrots, and, and even hope. even Etienne is talking about, you know, she eats a lot. Mm-hmm. Like we can, we have enough stores for the winter and stuff, but they don't care. They don't think about the cost as much. It's just oh, this is something that. I I want to do. Mm-hmm. I enjoy doing, and right. so so I'll be all, back. Yeah, <laughs> all collectively just giving to this horse. Right. The horse in turn gives to Pierre. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, I mean, not that manure is currency, but <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of non currency based generosity as well. Mm-hmm. There were exchanges going on. Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe she's showing some kind of juxtaposition between the the natural world and the natural order of things, and then the civilization. Right? Paris is kind of in many minds like the epitome of civilization, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. how they're how they're just right there against each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two very different economies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next question: Have you read any other books by Jane Smiley? And if so, how does this one compare? If not, are you inspired to read some other of her works? And I'm certainly intrigued. Uh, Knowing that this is her one foray into fantasy, I I feel like I'm not really prepared to go back and and dive into her other works. I don't really have a sense of how she writes, but I do know know, she has quite a reputation as uh, an incredible writer, both fiction and nonfiction. She's written for... 
for uh, young adults and adults. And uh, so obviously got a broad range of writing experience. I am curious to see, and I'll probably check out another Jane Smiley book. How about you, Denise? I haven't read any of her other books, and mm-hmm. I was pretty curious and, and intrigued to read others. And then when you were saying it was her first foray into um, this kind of writing, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, what if I don't like the others as much? Because I really <laughs> like those, you know, if they're very yeah. different. But mm-hmm. different could also be really good. So yep. I'm still looking forward to it. I mean, I still would want to, mm-hmm. um, but I think maybe I would take instead of just like, you know, pulling the one off the shelf that has the cover that you know, strikes me the first, mm-hmm. I might look into the summaries mm-hmm. a little bit more before I cho- choose blurb. it a little bit more, yeah, purposefully than mm-hmm. just like I usually do. Ooh, that one's pretty. I'm, yeah. I am my own raven sometimes. <laughs> it's shiny. <laughs> I like it. How about you, Jan? Yeah. Um, yeah, so since this one is so different, maybe I would enjoy her other works mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, I didn't, terribly enjoyed this one yeah the, but but largely I think it was just a lot of the themes that she a lot of the things she was writing about just aren't that interesting to me and I didn't enjoy the style mm. <laughs> but uh but yeah since her other works are so different um I guess I'm curious now mm-hmm. what they might be like well thank you Denise and Jana for a great discussion of Jane Smiley's Perestroika in Paris for next month's episode, we've chosen a nonfiction work, Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge by Ted Conover. It's a passage through an America lived wild and off the grid, where along with independence and stunning views come fierce winds, neighbors with criminal pasts, and minimal government and medical services. Cheap Land Colorado is available in regular print from the Longmont Library and in ebook and e-audiobook formats from the Front Range Downloadable Library. So grab a copy in your favorite format and then join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Please see our program notes for info on how to share your comments and questions with us. And thanks for listening to Book Chatter, the book club for busy people. <laughs>